You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. Still the same Hello and welcome to another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today, Matthew Block, uh, filling in for Nathan Gilmore this semester. I'm communications manager for the International Lutheran Council and editor of the Canadian Lutheran Magazine, and I live in Swan River, Manitoba. I'm joined today by David Grubbs, assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. David, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, especially after our, our weather drama of a few weeks ago, uh, it's it's been a nice nice balmy weather and and you know I, just such a relief. <laughs> and are you guys gearing up for for spring break there or or not? Yes, next week is spring break, uh, mm. which uh, I was a little worried for a bit that uh, having lost a week due to weather concerns that they would just sort of say, well, that was your week break. Um, fortunately, uh, more humane instincts, pre- instinct prevailed, and uh, we do still get a spring break. <laughs> Surely they can't do that. People make their plans for spring break months in advance. You can't just cancel it. Well, I, th- I think that was I, I think that was one of the deciding factors for, for, for why um, keeping it was there. But I do know that there were many schools, so the schools in our area that were simultaneously wrestling with what to do with that lost week in terms of seat time and all the rest of it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, uh, we, we were asked to find a, kind of soft ways to absorb that class per class. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm done so. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. A message to all the schools out there. You know you have a minimum number of class hours you have to do. Uh, maybe don't organize your semester so that there's no wiggle room to do the lead, the fewest number of class hours you possibly can and, and maintain your accreditation. Maybe have that extra week in there. And if, uh, and, and if you don't happen to need it, the students will learn something extra. Hey. <laughs> Well, folks, the other voice you hear there, of course, is Michael Farmer out in Sandy Springs, Georgia. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm good, Matthew. Anything new and exciting out there? Uh, no, not really, which uh, that's fun with me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, before we get into today's episode, it's worth asking if there's anything new on the network this week and if people have started putting things into the calendar. They have not. Um, we do. <laughs> Yesterday, there was a new Christian Humanist Profiles, uh, which I know because I conducted the interview. It's uh, with Bob Erlwine, who's the editor of a new anthology of writings by the 20th century Jewish philosopher Abraham Joshua Heschel. And that was a fun conversation and a good book. So hopefully our listeners will enjoy it. But other than that, we've got nothing on the calendar. Is that Thunder in the Soul? That's Thunder in the Soul. Did you get a copy, too? Yeah, very cool. 
Plow sends all of us everything. I, I think they're hoping to get all their people on every podcast on our network. <laughs> I I assume you're going to hear Erlwine on Sectarian Review eventually, too, because that book is right up Danny's alley. Yeah. Plow's good, though. Yeah. Keep sending them. Amen. <laughs> on today's episode, we're discussing The Lamp at Noon, a short story by the Canadian author Sinclair Ross. If our listeners haven't heard it before or read it, it's pretty easy to find online with a simple Google search. This story, first published in 1938, is something of a fixture in Canadian literature. I would guess that most Canadian high school students have either read this story or one of other or one of Ross's other stories called The Painted Door. At any event, a high school literature class was my first introduction to Ross's writings. Um, but despite his prominence in Canadian literature, I mean, his his novel, uh, As for Me and My House, is something of a canonical text in Canadian lit. But despite all this, it's still fair to say that Sinclair Ross isn't really a household name. And I'm guessing neither of you have come across him before. Is that right? No, I had never heard of him. Okay. Me neither. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's worth asking then who Ross was. And uh, where he came from and what kind of literature he writes. So I'm, I'm wondering, David, if you could give us just a bit of background on, on Sinclair Ross. Well, uh, James Sinclair Ross uh, was, as you say, one of uh, Canada's uh, sort of great novelists of the last century, um, born uh, very early in the century, 1908. He died in 1996, so um, his, his life spanned much of it. He was born in Saskatchewan, so uh, that means I get have to I, I get a chance to try out a word that I've never said before: Saskatchewanian. We, we Saskatchewanian. We say Saskatchewan and Saskatchewanian. If you if you wanted to use that noun, yeah. <laughs> Saskatchewanian. All right, excellent. Um, there is a, an encyclopedia of Saskatchewan um, maintained by the University of Regina. And uh, that I was consulting their article. It said he is a native-born Saskatchewanian. So now, how impressive that you knew to pronounce it Regina and not Regina. Um, (laughs) uh, I had not heard of James Sinclair Ross, but I had heard of Regina. (laughs) So, yeah, he was himself uh, born uh, to parents uh, who were. Uh, who were farming in uh, in in Saskatchewan? Uh, he, uh, his parents separated when he was young, and he was raised uh, by his mother. Um, his uh, his upper schooling, uh, well, for a while he was he was a banker. Uh, he worked for a bank. Um, he also uh, began. He wrote his first novel, as for me in my house. Um, it was published in oh, 1941, yeah, 41, um, but also put, was publishing many uh, short stories and magazines along the way and uh, winning some some uh, recognition for that. Uh, he seems to have been disappointed uh, relatively earlier, uh, re- early in his career with the reception of his novels, um, but uh, publishing publishing bleak sketches of of the lives of farmers in the dirty 30s 
um, during the war years was not necessarily what everyone wanted. Um, looking for more escapist fare, I imagine. Uh, but that reputation was secured later on. Uh, he, he attracted more attention, and within his own lifetime, uh, school children were reading his his novels and short stories as part of the regular curriculum. And beyond that, what else would we need to know? I mean, he's writing about things that he has some some direct knowledge and awareness of. He's certainly uh, not only alive, but also an an adult um, during during that period. Um, so he's writing about things that he's that he's able to observe, and he had experience uh, as one who was raised in farming communities. What what else would we add to that? I think maybe the only thing I might mention there. I mean, that's that's a pretty good bio of, of Ross. I might mention just kind of some of the places where he lived. I mean, when we think of small towns, I don't know what an American from various state would call a small town, but we're talking very small in Saskatchewan at this point in time, and even today for that matter. Mm-hmm. Kind of the places where he lived are, are very small communities, Indian Head, uh, Shelbrook, Saskatchewan, where he was born, um, and the places where he worked as a bank. In, in these small Saskatchewan villages. I mean, they're, they're still villages today. You, you know, the, the biggest town he worked in as a banker prior to, move, prior to moving to Winnipeg was a town that's still about 600 people today. That's that's it. Wow. So these are tiny little communities. And that really informs a lot of his writing. He's, he's living in the middle of these very sparsely populated areas. Mm-hmm. Um the only other thing I might mention or, or draw attention to is is that uh, you mentioned that he had been a banker. He kind of basically stayed a banker for his entire professional life because, as you say, he had um, he had some disappointments in in the way his literature was received initially, but also he had a lot of self doubt as far as his literature went. And we know from some some other things that he destroyed a lot of his own writing, so it never was seen by anyone. So. Um, that kind of self-doubt might might be relevant as well. He, I mean, he retired, I think, fairly happily. He lived for part of his retirement in in Greece and in Spain before returning to Canada. But th- those are just some things maybe to keep in the background. Yeah. So he he never th- saw himself as a writer full stop. He was a banker who wrote, and that might be something to keep in mind. Matthew, can um, you give us a sense of what his position is in Canadian literature? I had never heard of him, but then my knowledge of Canadian literature doesn't go much beyond Margaret Atwood and uh, Alvis Munro and, yeah. and Saul Bellow, if you count him, which I gather a lot of Canadians don't. So, I, like, how important is Sinclair Ross for um, for Canadian literature as a whole? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say for, for pure Canadian literature, a lot of more famous names would look at Ross as, as a very deep influence on their own writing. I mean, Atwood does note uh, his influence early on, decades ago now, we're talking about when Atwood was writing about Sinclair Ross. But other Canadian uh, authors like um, Margaret Lawrence and uh, again, probably a bunch of names that might not be very familiar to our readers or listeners, pardon me, um, all saw Ross as, as deeply influential. Um, 
a couple of them would say that this was the first time in reading Ross is the first time that they saw that their own personal lives could be treated in a literary way. Um, the idea that prairie life could be uh, the subject of literature. And uh, so I, I'd say Ross is important, but I, I think it's also fair to say that Canadian lit as a genre is is not really well defined in some ways. So I'd say people who are interested in studying Canadian lit as Canadian lit would know who Sinclair Ross is, but not necessarily the general public. Um, How was the MLA conference, uh, the regional MLA conference, the day Alice Munro won the Nobel Prize in whatever year that was, 2014, 2015? And uh, I, I remember talking to this guy who did Canadian lit, and he was, of course, very excited because she's the first Canadian woman to win the Nobel Prize. And really, he said she's the first Canadian to win because um, because he really did not consider Saul Bellow, who moved to America at a young age. And in his his most famous novel begins, uh, I'm a, I'm an American Chicago born. Um, he, he really didn't consider Bellow to be Canadian at all. Um, no, and I mean, but, yeah, that's, well, I was just going to say that's that's kind of a perennial problem in Canadian in the Canadian art scene. Successful people tend to move south where there's a, a much larger audience. Sure. And, uh, so no, I, I could see that. Ross Ross did most of I think he did basically all of his writing in in Canada. So he's he tends to be considered a a, a Canadian classic. Like I say, I mean, especially his novel As for Me in My House, that's a that's a, a canonical text in, in Canadian lit. There's just not a lot of people who talk about Canadian lit at the first sure. in the first place. Sure. It gets treated typically as a subdivision of British lit, which has always seemed kind of silly to me. I mean, it's it's no more a subdivision of British lit than Caribbean literature is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's fair. So, so we steal your authors as much as we steal your comedians? Musicians. Uh, musicians. But you can have some <laughs> of them. I, I didn't really I didn't really cry too much when Justin Bieber moved south, so... <laughs> yeah, but... You still get Joni Mitchell, right? Yes, yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's move along here. So, the lamp at noon, like much of Sinclair Ross's work, is set during the dirty thirties. Pardon me. In fact, the story was first published in 1938. So, what should our listeners know about this era of history? About the Great Depression's effects on the livelihood of farmers, for example, and the droughts, dust bowls, which afflicted uh, North American prairies during this time. Michael. Yeah, so I'm going to talk mostly about the effects in America, and I, I assume they're fairly similar to the to the Great Plains of Canada. But if 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 it's distinct up there, let me know, um, and and you know chastise me for being uh, Amerocentric. <laughs> the Great the Great Depression starts in this country in 1929 when the stock market crashes. Right, the th- this this is already terrible. <laughs> Um, and then the 1930s find a series of four different droughts, really serious droughts, um, grip the middle of the continent in a way that just exacerbates the effects of the Great Depression that are, that's, that are already in sway. And th- they're caused in part because there's a global shortage of wheat because of the Russian Revolution. So the idea is that the, the breadbasket uh, farmers, as they're called in um, in this country, 
the breadbasket farmers are going to have to make up some of that uh, some of that difference, and they end up overtaxing the land. And on top of that, there's just a kind of natural drought cycle that happens to come about at the time it is the least welcome. And the result is that something like 75% of the topsoil in Oklahoma and Kansas and Nebraska literally gets blown away uh, by these by these dust storms that come about during the droughts. And obviously the effects are catastrophic. And this is where you get the the mass migration of Midwesterners out to California because they have no home left. Like literally the land is no longer there. Um, and, and so in desperation, they move to where the land blew, which is to say California. I, it's really amazing to think about the fact that the topsoil, the thing they were literally using to grow their crops, no longer existed. It, it doesn't seem like something that could go away. And yet that's exactly what happened. My understanding is this: all of this was exacerbated by certain farming techniques that I am not enough of a small f farmer to understand well enough to explain. But my, my understanding is it's not just the natural cycles. It's not just the overproduction. There's also things they're doing that, that cause the topsoil not to be able to withstand these dust storms. But um, man, things are nasty. And thousands and thousands, I think tens of thousands of farmers have to leave the middle part of this continent um, just because there's nothing left for them to farm. And and that's that's clearly the background here of the Lamp at Noon. You have one of these dust storms coming through, and 1938, 1939 was a big one, um, and, and, and the farmers not knowing whether they're going to be able to hold on or not. Uh, this this serves as the background for one of the most famous novels in American lit, which is John Steinbeck's uh, The Grapes of Wrath, which is all about the Jodes, an Oklahoma family that finds themselves migrating down Route 66 out to Bakersfield, California. And they find, as many, many, many migrants did, that California did not have the jobs to offer them. And there were so many of them there that even the jobs that did exist didn't pay enough for anybody to live off of. Um, so that's that's the background to the Grapes of Wrath. It's also the background to a, a large number of Woody Guthrie songs. He has a song called the Do Re Mi, which is uh, the, the chorus is, if you ain't got the Do Re Mi, you ain't got the Do Re Mi, meaning if you come to California and you don't have any money, you're not going to find it. Um, you're not going to find it a welcoming place. And, and so unfortunately, these people whose lives were completely disrupted, um, most of them did not find things any better on the West Coast. Uh, so yeah, it's totally catastrophic. Where did uh, the Canadian equivalent of the Yoki, the Okies, go, Matthew? Did they were they able to stay and eke out a living, or did they go to British Columbia, or did they go to California? What what did they do? Mm-hmm. Well, it it's the Western provinces in Canada that really struggle with the effects of the of the Dirty Thirties in Canada, and uh, a number of people did move. Um, to what we would call Central Canada, to Ontario, places like this, uh, or to British Columbia. The other direction. Yeah, or to British Columbia, um, a little bit. It depended where you were, obviously. Uh, but um, uh, a lot of people really didn't have the financial means 
to leave even to even even to leave um right. the the effects of the the dirty 30s in canada are not i mean they're not significantly different than what happens in the states um the the total like gro- uh, drop in gross domestic product between canada and the states it's i think it's 37 in the states to 40 percent in Canada. So they're, they're big drops all around, right? But right. Saskatchewan itself suffers very badly during during this period. Like uh, certain places in the States, Saskatchewan is known as Canada's breadbasket. And uh, because back then, that's all they did was grow wheat. Uh, that was really the whole economy. And uh, as the economic and the ecological disasters of the 30s take hold, then the provincial economy basically collapses uh, within two years of the depression starting farming income had dropped by 90 percent in the province and uh, they, they, they in, in terms of real numbers I mean you look at 1928 and they make 363 million dollars uh, as farming income in the province five years later they've made 11 million so oh it's just gosh. it's just absolutely catastrophic by 1937 two-thirds of of uh, Saskatchewan farmers are basically destitute. They have no money. They're in the hole, um, and they have nothing. Or they're, they're land poor, if you want to put it that way. But it's not much of land. Um, and, but it, and it's worth noting things had already gone to crap. Like this would have destroyed the economy, even if things were going well, and things mm-hmm. were already as bad as they'd ever been. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, coupled with all of these disasters, I mean, the 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 grain price absolutely collapses eventually here too and so even if you could uh, get a crop off one year the best you could hope to do is break even because <laughs> you can't sell it and make any money it, it, it just absolutely is destroyed um, so it's a very difficult period of time Saskatchewan especially becomes the recipient of uh, people in in in, in Ontario sending uh, train loads of just food because there's no food in Saskatchewan. People can't support themselves, and this is some. This relief is all done not at the national level, but at, at local and, and regional and, and sometimes in provincial sections. So it's it's really just devastating. Um, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's. There's no other way to put it. It's devastating, and people couldn't get out to a large extent in some cases. Um, so it's a nice happy story, as you can tell. And, uh, right. <laughs> as we as we go on then uh, to the story itself here, um, the lamp at noon really tells the story of a farmer and his wife facing um, severe marital discord in the midst of the dirty thirties. So, David, what's the source of their conflict, and to and to what tragic end does it ultimately lead? Yeah. Yeah, as you said, um, nice happy stories. Um, it, one of the one of the bios of uh, Sinclair Ross that I was looking at um, described uh, described his uh, one of his novels as a gloomy portrait of rather miserable people, um, which is not entirely fair, but also yeah, this is definitely gloomy and definitely there's misery here um but it's much deeper than that 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 that's kind of the the lemony snicket version right 
what we want to dig in, what we want to chase is the Sophocles or maybe even Euripides version of what's going on here. So we have a husband and wife. Uh, they have a baby. And uh, they uh, apparently relocated um, from from a town um, uh, years back. Uh, he he got this farm and he's been working this farm for years and years. And now the 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 weather, the climate, uh, everything has gone the way that um, we just uh, we just described. And uh, the husband wants to stay. Uh, he wants to continue. He thinks that he can, uh, he can bring this uh, bring this farm back. Uh, the wife, though, has had any hopes that she's had of of this situation being recoverable, um, just slowly beaten out of her um, by the dust. And so the the tension between the two of them is uh, he wants. He wants to stay, feels like he needs to stay, and she wants to go. You see, she's got family back in town, and her father has a store. So for her, there's there's, an, there's a fallback position. There's an escape route. Um, for him, there is no escape route. Uh, this is what he's for. So that's the, that's the basic situation. Um... The story, though, is much more interested in the the psychology of trauma that's forcing these people to this conflict. They aren't having this argument in the abstract. Things aren't kind of bad. Things are very bad. And the story focuses it again and again on the way that this situation has transformed them. Um, and one, one section... Um, Fairly shortly in, into the story, um, the, the husband comes in for dinner, and uh, there's this this moment in which it dwells on his face and her face. It says, Dust and drought, earth that betrayed alike his labor and his faith, to him the struggle had given sternness and impassive courage. Beneath the whip of sand his youth had been effaced. Youth zest exuberance there remained only a harsh and clinched virility that yet became him that seemed at the cost of the more engaging qualities to be fulfillment of his inmost and essential nature so somehow all of this situation has it has battered him until he is this hard keen edge that still has this no nobility to it um but it's sharp, it's hard, it's stoic, it's Spartan, it's all of those kinds of descriptors. And that is not what his wife needs. Um, that same, uh, it says, the same debts and poverty had brought in her a plaintive indignation, a nervous dread of what was still to come. The eyes were hollowed, the, limbs, uh, the lips pinched dry and colorless, the face of a woman that had aged without maturing, that had loved the little vanities of life, and lost them wistfully. And he he is not what she needs right now. <laughs> so yeah, the 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 interplay of them emotionally is is a big concern here. Um, she 
it's not just that she fears the weather, it's that she fears uh, even being able to communicate to him. Clearly, this is the, the argument that happens in this story is one of many that have come before, and they've hurt one another with each other's words. They are unable to connect in ways that they both are drawn to um, by this memory of words that they've said before. Um, each feels that they have to harden and commit to this um, this stance of, of rightness in this ongoing quarrel um, in ways that prevent them from being able to um, empathize rightly with each other in ways that they both know they need to do and they both know they need it, but neither of them can do it. Um, hat tip while we're here to, uh, to Ross's um, use of an omniscient narrator that lets you into the thoughts and feelings of both of his characters um, giving you access to what neither of them has access to in the other so mm. that you can see the irony. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, it, it's a, it's an internal, it's an internal drama of, of tragic irony. If either knew what the other thought and felt they could have been for each other, what the other needed, but because they are inaccessible to each other and the way they are accessible to us, they can't. Um, so, uh, even though I might be spoiling it for, um, American readers, uh, apparently I'm not going to spoil it for any of our Canadian listeners cause they read it in school. <laughs> uh, in the end, um, he goes back out to the, after the argument, he goes back out to the barn to take care of the horses. And, uh, when he comes back, uh, the dust storm stops he sees what it's done to his fields. He sees that there is no hope. And he comes back to the house bent on at least some kind of a resolution, some kind of a – something in him has given as a result of what he's seen. But when he comes back, she's not there. And uh, when he and the neighbors go and search for her, uh, he eventually does find her uh, with the baby. Um, she's clearly um, shell-shocked. Uh, just uh, incomplete, uh, completely traumatized, and uh, uh, unaware that the baby has died uh, as she's held him. And so uh, in the end, he carries them both back, uh, back to the house, back to no future at all um, as the sky clears. Yeah. Yeah, not not exactly, as they say, the happiest of stories. Michael, is there anything else that you want to add about about this story here or the or the discord in their marriage that you think is relevant for our listeners? It's not an uncommon discord. This is a thing that a lot of young married couples go through early on, right? Like you 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 don't know each other that well when you get married and you want different things from life, but you've been afraid to tell each other that. And the, the first couple of years of marriage are hard for anyone. And yeah. as the, as the great depression or as the uh, dust bowl destroys, makes, makes the great depression even worse. So it makes their marriage, which was already going to be hard, much harder, maybe even impossible. Brutal. The other thing I would point to, and I think in, in a way it's the saddest detail 
of the whole story. This is him when he goes and takes care of the horses after their argument. At a whinny from the bay mare, Bess, he went forward and into her stall. She seemed grateful for his presence and thrust her nose deep between his arm and body. They stood a long time motionless, comforting and assuring each other. Like, it's Mm. in him Mm. to give this thing to his wife, but for some reason he can't. And he gives it to the horse instead. Oh, Mm -hmm. awful. Yeah, and I mean, and that's something that's really stressed early in the story. I mean she says a couple times she she would like to even hold the baby to feel the comfort of his little body in her arms but she she can't she's worried the dust will give him pneumonia or she wants to go to Paul to feel his arms supporting her but she doesn't and then when she finally does reach for him he of course pulls his smock from her grasp and and goes out to the barn as you say so it's just it's just so tragic I think that he does as you say go to the horse for that comfort and denies it to his wife and the only time he finally does hold her is at the very end of the story when it's too late and the child is dead and he carries them home. It's just it's just utterly, utterly sad. The other detail uh, at, at the end is the, the baby stops being a he and starts being an it. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was torn in that last scene between the end of Lear and the Pieta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think I think very much I think very much him holding his wife and the dead child is just Yeah. Aren't you Canadians supposed to be optimistic people? <laughs> Pol- polite people, not necessarily optimistic. <laughs> Actually I think I saw some some recent study talking about the effects of the pandemic recently on Canadians and we're we're dropping on the happiness scale rather dramatically compared to other countries this, uh-huh. this time. We were so. already at the bottom, so we look better now, don't we? <laughs> I don't think it's a race, Michael. A race to the bottom, yeah. Um, well, of course, we we we're, we're talking around this. Weather is really an integral part of of much of Sinclair Ross's fiction, and including this story. So, what role does weather play in this? in uh, in the lamp at noon and what does its depiction suggest about the author's understanding of the of the world we live in well the, the literary tradition he belongs to is this thing called naturalism which is kind of a ultra dark ultra pessimistic outgrowth of the realist tradition I, we did an episode many years ago on realism of all sorts and i'm sure i talk about naturalism there but for readers of american literature if you think of someone like stephen crane um who whose story the blue hotel i think this this reminds me of in some important ways or uh the french author emile zola or uh, Theodore Dreiser, another American author. Like th- these are people who treat the world as this this kind of horrible domino setup, where once one thing gets pushed, all the dominoes are going to fall over, and human beings are going to be lying underneath each of the dominoes. Human beings unable, in some sense, to make their own decisions. So it, it barely even rises to the level of tragedy, any more than um, a bunch of deer dying in a forest fire rise to the level of tragedy um, because we're all just like Mongo pawns in the game of life. Uh, And and so the the weather ends up being an important part of naturalist fiction because the weather demonstrates the 
uh, unfeelingness of the natural world, the the way it, it's not concerned with us. It doesn't care what we need or what we do. It doesn't care if we find it beautiful or horrible. It's just going to keep coming. And so you certainly get that here. You get it in the in the second paragraph of the uh, of the story. Uh, the 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 lower of dust clouds made the farmyard seem an isolated acre poised aloft above a somber void. So you have this notion that nothingness surrounds them and it's encroaching. And in fact, by the end of the story, nothingness will have conquered the child. And in some sense, it will have conquered um, Paul and uh, Ellen as well. So you, you have this idea of nature as this unfeeling void that is constantly threatening to wipe out civilization. And the farmer must feel this worse than other people because his livelihood is so uh, dependent on the natural world cooperating with what he wants it to do. And and here in the Great Depression, in the Dust Bowl, we have, um, we have a total refusal of the natural world to do that. Now, what's interesting to me is that in in this country, naturalism was largely over. Um, by 1938, I would say Steinbeck is a kind of partial return to naturalism, but his his prose is so lyrical that I have a hard time thinking. I think of him as much more sentimental than the naturalists were, even though he was using um, the conventions of that form. I don't see any sentimentality at all in Ross. It's it, it's much more in that Stephen Crane, the world does not care about you and it is going to destroy you and nobody's going to care um, school of naturalism. Uh, and, and you definitely get that. You get these people have been destroyed by nature. And again, you get it on the first page. Uh, her eyes all the while were fixed and wide with a curious immobility. It was the window. Standing at it, she let her forehead press against the pane until the eyes were strained apart and rigid. Wide like that, they had looked out to the deepening ruin of the storm. Now she could not close them. So the 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 death storm has actually changed her view of the world permanently. It's its infected her. She's become part of this dust storm. And it, it all leads up to that horrible final scene where she is out in it, you know, uh, where the dust storm may have passed, but it hasn't passed in her and, um, and will continue presumably to destroy her um, for the rest of her life, whatever that looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the weather in this story is it's this dust storm that represents the unfeeling nothingness of the world. And it is a constant threat and uh, it will conquer as the naturalists believe it would conquer all of us. Pretty mm-hmm. bleak. Yeah. Yeah. David, do you have any thoughts on on the weather in this story, too? One of the things that I appreciate about it at the very beginning um, the demented wind fled keening past the house, a wail through the eaves that died every minute or two. Um, just the, the ways that there are descriptions of this, uh, of this weather, but they are, they are thematic. They are, um, not just, um, not just sensory, but also um, affective, emotive, um, as if the world does have some feeling and some um, some intention, uh, as if it is uh, in some way a reflection of what the of what characters are experiencing, or or at least um, ha- has some kind of 
uh, almost some kind of perverse agency to it. Um, that that's in, that that's really interesting to me. The way um, the prose, I think, is really um, getting at something that's a hard and fast. It's it's a very hard human instinct. You know, even even as we may have this, you know, kind of modern and scientific and mechanistic view of what the natural world is and it's just weather, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When it happens to you, it feels like Poseidon. <laughs> it feels like Zeus. Um, that... and, yet, and yet, David, I would say that that description is a description of a human being, but only after the weather has her way with her. That, that description, yeah. the demented wind fled keening past the house, that's a description of Ellen in the last part of the story. Yeah, yeah. But it's not that the, we- the it's not that the weather resembles her. It's that she's been changed to resemble the weather. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. Um, the uh, the horses. It's it's not until uh, what's in we we talked earlier about you, you mentioned earlier, Michael, um, him seeking uh, seeking comfort in the company of the horses. Um, it's also his realization that he's failed the horses that breaks through um, when he's uh, he rubs his hand along the horse's side and uh, it says Paul ran his hand over the ribs and felt a sudden shame, a sting of fear that Ellen might be right in what she said. For wasn't it true? Nine years a farmer now on his own land and still he couldn't even feed his horses. What then could he hope to do for his wife and son? And then he goes out and he sees what the dust has done to the land. Um, he, the the conflict between the two of them um, has and it has made such a such a barrier that um, he can't he cannot hear the truth from her. But he's attuned to he's attuned to, to the things that he has given himself to for for care and cultivation and they when when they tell him the truth he hears it um there there's a way in which he's connected to this dead and dying land um that it's it is the truth for him um that is uh, tragic not just bad and awful and sad but but tragic the way that this farmer is connected to a dead land mm-hmm. and i mean that that really comes up right as he comes out of the barn as the storm lifts and he sees the barren fields there's a a kind of a striking section there it says suddenly he emerged from the numbness suddenly the fields before him struck his eyes to comprehension they lay black naked beaten and mounded smooth with dust as if a sea in gentle swell had turned to stone And though he had tried to prepare himself for such a scene, though he had known since yesterday that not a blade would last the storm, still now, before the utter waste confronting him, he sickened and stood cold. Suddenly, like the field, he was naked. Everything that had sheathed him a little from the realities of existence, vision and purpose, faith in the land, in the future, in himself, it was all rent now, stripped away. It's just, as you say, it's... you, you you confront this this awful thing, this awful uncaring world, and even what you've tried to care for is stripped away. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. If we can borrow the the words from Ecclesiastes, and I think yeah, it, it's just very hard. I, I think I think there's something to what you guys are saying. 
Michael, you've you've noted kind of the the uncaring uh, nature of of the universe, how it just doesn't seem to it has it takes no notice of you at all, kind of a thing. But uh, there's also been, I think, a hint that there's a you can almost see this the weather as as personified in some ways, as if it was deliberate or malevolently attacking mm-hmm. you. And there's a in in his other in his novel As for Me and My House, Ross has a couple sections that that kind of depict both of those things at the same time. And there's one specific uh, passage there where he says, "We shrink from our insignificance." the stillness and solitude. We think a force or presence into it, even a hostile presence, deliberate, aligned against us, for we dare not admit an indifferent wilderness where we may have no meaning at all. And it's it's precisely those things. We we we, we are unwilling to just see the universe as uncaring. We'd rather have it angry at us in some ways than than to take no notice of us at all. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a really interesting point. Well, the lamp at noon, as we've said, gives us a rather bleak picture of the universe. Even the little symbols of hope in the story, the, the, titular, the titular lamp, for example, in the end gives way to despair. Some Christians would balk at reading a story like this. So, David, what value is there in reading stories of this sort? And at the same time, what correctives might we want to bring to Ross's story? The first thing that I would do is is that I would feel very very hesitant to to rush in with consolation. Right. Um, there is a bleakness to this story that um, demands to be seen as starkly as Paul walking out of his barn and seeing his bare fields. Um, hmm. I mean, there is uh, an instinct to rush to consolation in uh, – I won't say all of Christianity, but in much of of modern American Christianity, which is what I know, um, there is frequently a rush to consolation, a rush to see the silver lining, a rush to – you know, frame the tragedy in some theological way that that ends with, um, you know, the – the, the eschaton of, of, of glory and restoration. Um, you know, I still, you know, we recited the Nicene Creed on Sunday. And, you know, we got to, you know, believing in uh, the resurrection of the body and the life uh, everlasting, the life to come. And yes, that's, that's the Christian story. But there's also um, the word that, what became incarnate and was made man for us in our salvation and suffered and died. And this is a, this is a story that helps to remind us that um, death might be defeated, but gosh, it's still got teeth in it. And and it, I, th- I think it's just really, really good. Um, to, to take this as, almost as a corrective to um, uh, a, a shallow instinct. Um, so that, that's what it's, I, I think, what it's good for Christians for, um, to kind of, um, you know, make, make, the, m- make us look. Stories can do that. They make us look. They make us see. 
the other thing is it reminds us of how much of God's word, how much of God's revelation is about this sort of thing to people who are experiencing it. Um, we can uh, we can bounce very easily over the story of Joseph and the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine. Um, because it ends with Joseph being restored to his family in a happy ending. Yay! But it was seven years of famine. Right. Real, real actual people had to go through it. Um, and, many, and many other things of that sort that are in the Bible, that those who live in a sheltered, rich, food-rich, energy-rich, convenient, entertainment-rich entertainment rich world... Um, to, to be reminded that that those are not the the realities for most of humanity and most of history in most places. Um, stories like this are are what is more real to most people's experience. You know what though, David? I've given up on us ever learning it. If the yeah. if the pandemic didn't teach us the fragility of human life, I I, I don't understand how yeah. we're ever going to learn it. I mean, it's just I I I I don't know. I don't think I don't think it had any kind of beneficial effects on the western psyche um the way you might expect an encounter with contingency and death to have instead we just kind of went further into our um igloos our uh, our our uh, feedback loops i was talking to uh a student after class today not even my student we just happened to sort of fall into conversation but the, in that little conversation, um, she said something. Um, uh, we were talking about a, a, a public figure who was going through a, a disgracing event. Um, and she said uh, something about um, maybe this will crush him in, in, in a hopeful tone. <laughs> maybe this will crush him. And I, I think there is really something in that that, the, the the crushing, which is the kind of thing, it, which is I, I think was her way of saying what you're saying, Michael. That that coming to terms with that, um, that having that that vanity crushed out of you, um, that's something that happens to have has to happen individually. And our culture is so good at insulating from individual ins, insulating us from individual experience. By wrapping our consciousness with a with a consistent and pervasive social connection, um, I think that that explains to some extent why reading tragedy or reading these these very difficult and and hard and sometimes horrific things is not necessarily a bad thing for Christians. I think of how Jesus responds when he's asked about. Uh, the the murder of the Galilean Jews by Pilate and uh, he talks about well do you think they were worse sinners or the people who were crushed by the tower in Siloam were they worse sinners he says no uh, I tell you but unless you repent you all will likewise perish so the answer is always repent yeah and it's it's not just suffering doesn't come upon you as necessarily as a punishment for your specific sin but when we witness this death we should remember our own mortality and deaths and uh, take a lesson from that. Not that it's, again, just just take the moral, you know, you see someone 
doing poorly well. I'll, I'll remember my own mortality and not do anything for them. But it's there's there's an element of all of these different things that that are true. And I, I mean, I mean, this idea of crushing vanity out of us. I don't think it's an accident that this story describes Ellen as someone who loved the little vanities and lost them. Um, I, I think that is intentionally drawing on kind of the language of Ecclesiastes um, and, and the sense of meaninglessness, which which does pervade this text. The idea that we return to dust, which is, again, uh, something that's repeated twice in the book of Ecclesiastes about us returning to dust. I think I think it's good to read books like Ecclesiastes and, and to read books like Job, where we don't necessarily get the answers, where we, for lack of a better term, observe the three days between Good Friday before we get to Easter. Um, you, he, he lies in the tomb three days. There's no point in skipping those three days. If God wanted to skip it, he could have. Yeah. And... Uh, yeah, obviously, obviously, we we understand and believe in resurrection and the comfort that comes through Christ and Christ alone. But there has to be a place for really recognizing and dwelling on and dealing with the fact of of mortality and natural evil and suffering. The real historical biographical fact. Um. That that idea that the storm broke in the third day, you know, uh, every, all the Christian in me is like, ah, day three, then comes resurrection. But not everyone lives to day three. Not everyone lives for that downward turn in the comedy to turn uh, to, to to turn into into the hopeful upswing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the you know, you, you we might be able to infer. You know, from the plot line of Scripture and the framework, the narrative framework of God's great acts in history, that the narrative line of our lives in some way continues and fits in this in this arc that that has a hopeful trajectory to it. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the lives of particular persons are all going to follow that arc in life. Um, you know that faith that hope is hard um it's hard to keep and it's it's uh yeah reading stories about people who have hope beaten out of them in this case though hope in small things that was one thing um his hope was in the land and that was beaten out of him um, I don't know. Maybe that maybe that feels like a Christian turn too, but even then, um, I have I have a strong sense of sympathy to that. You know, uh, we all know the sense of of idealism that comes from pursuing a particular vocation, and then when you get into the reality of the vocation, often that experience is much less ideal than we had thought it would be. Right. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that you know. Everybody encounters their dust bowl, but there, there is there is some sense in which um, the hope that we feel getting into some particular vocation or calling. I'm gonna I'm gonna have this sort of life. Um, it's it's almost never what you thought it was going to be. Um, it's always harder, and part of that is just maturity. 
of learning how the world is and why you need to read things like Ecclesiastes. <laughs> well, guys, are there, I mean, these are some of the, the major themes and elements of the story that I thought were worth discussing, but I, it is worth asking whether there are other things in here that either of you think we should mention. Um, Michael, do you have anything you'd like to, to bring up? If this were a Stephen Crane story, or even a John Steinbeck story, there would be some pointed references to the failure of religion to answer these questions. Uh, if this were a sentimental Christian story, there would be some sort of telegraphed hope in religion. Instead, there's neither of those things. Religion is, as far as I can tell, not mentioned in the story directly at all. It's a completely irreligious universe they're living in. And I don't know what to make of that, but I think it's interesting. It, in, I can't help but comparing, of course, this book to some of Russ's other things. Sure. Um, As for me in my house, the novel I've mentioned a couple times is written. It's the diary of a of a preacher's wife, um, written in the midst of this context. Although we learn from the story that neither she nor her husband are really believers in God um, they're there they're stuck in this kind of situation for for other reasons or at least this is what she herself says there's questions of how reliable she is as a narrator in the text so what she says about her husband has to be taken with a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of uh, salt but um, in in one of the passages there he they he, he says exp- explicitly there he says because he's describing this congregation who's, you know, showing up to pray again after five years of of drought. And she, she says, five years in succession now, they've been blown out, dried out, hailed out. And it was in the face of so blind and uncaring a universe that they were trying to assert themselves, to insist upon their own meaning and importance, to which a second character responds. He says, man can't bear to admit his insignificance. If you've ever seen a hailstorm or watched a crop dry up, his helplessness, the way he's ignored. Well, it was just such helplessness in the beginning that set him discovering gods who could control the storms and seasons. So there is some of that there, even if it doesn't come up in this particular story. It does show up in some of Ross's other writings. That is very Stephen Cranian. So that that is more what I would have expected from a naturalist author. Mm-hmm. David? I can't get over the ways in which um, this is this is tragic in the sense that the story finds things about this man that are clearly admirable. Um, the uh, that that one paragraph that I read about um, the the struggle having having transformed him. Uh, a harsh and clenched virility that yet became him, right? So there's there's something there's something about this transformation that has, um, it hasn't been a good situation, but there's there's ways in which it's changed him that's made him it's made him strong in ways that otherwise might be good, um, you know, and that uh, that farmers um perseverance um endurance the uh the characters 
a really eager acceptance and owning of all that is hard about his life because he thinks that he can he can do these things um you know one of the very last you know comments of his wife in the story is about the strength of his arms as he carries her and the dead child um he's strong and that's good but the tragedy is stronger and that's what makes it tragedy hmm. i've uh, i've had a, a special i don't want to say love but i i i i do like the writings of sinclair ross in a, in a strange and tragic way and i remember it must be a decade ago now that i was talking with a friend about about Sinclair Ross and, and the literature. And I remember him wrinkling his nose and saying, too much dust. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was it was kind of funny at the time. But uh, what was clear is, I mean, he wanted literature that had uh, more history and more mystery to it. He wanted things with deep, deep roots, uh, with Enta Yewerk, with enta if, if that's the correct pronunciation, the ruins of giants, um, as it were. Yeah, but the, but the more I've thought about it in in the years since, the more I've come to appreciate and defend dust literature. Dust is, after all, a symbol of our mortality. It's the origin from which man springs. It's the ultimate destination on this earth, and the breath might return to God, as Ecclesiastes says. But the dust returns to earth. It's ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So I've I, I even I've even tended to start thinking of you know sweeping the floors as this poetic resistance against mortality in a sense you know we sweep we, we chase these little dust balls out of our homes because there are these unconscious memento moris that we don't want around and uh obviously we we have a, a fuller solution to this in, in in christ but it's not wrong to think about mortality to think about evil to think about the wrong things i think there's a there's a quote of chesterton somewhere where he says something like um it's not always wrong to go to the highest promontory in hell and look down um it's when you're looking up that the problem has probably been made but uh i think there's something worthwhile about looking down into this dust and seeing the reality of suffering mm -hmm. yeah. there's an old english word for that too um uh it's from one of the blickling homilies uh it's uh dust shewang a showing or a spectacle of dust. Hmm. It just sounds like you said dust sharing with a bad uh, speech impediment. It's showing. It's showing. It's showing. A showing of uh, dust. Sure, not sharing. Showing. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we put the lamp out and end this episode... Uh, do you guys have any other recommendations that, that come about as an outgrowth of this week's discussion? Any movies about farmers people should check out or stories about the Depression? Or do you have something more hopeful that you'd like to offset the bleakness of the lamp at noon with? Uh, David? As I was uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking of other stories, um, some of which I'm, uh, I've, I've been reading to my daughter, um, which is you know, Louisa May Alcott's Little House on the Prairie series. And uh, in that one, there's, you know, not the not the big dust storms, but there is a long winter. And um, 
that that was where I, a you know suburban, you know twentieth century, uh, you know Gen Xer, learned about you know the, those those kinds of dust stories, hard stories. Um, so, Farmer Boy, you know. Uh, is is probably the most positive and cheerful one. There aren't any kind of major tragedies in it, but the the sense of the strength that's necessary, um, the, the the real nobility in in the sorts of people that have chosen a life like that and continue to choose it um, as uh, as nature keeps throwing kind of curveball after curveball after curveball. Um, the people who show up and endure and continue in the cultivation of the land. Um, I, I admire that. So um, it made me think of those books. It also made me think of family stories about the Great Depression. Uh, my family was in uh, northern Alabama at the time, not, uh, not in the Plain States. So for them, it wasn't so much the Dust Bowl as it was uh, the economic impact of, of, of all of it. Uh, one of my grandfathers was uh, living uh, in a housing project in Birmingham, Alabama, um, uh, essentially without a dad. And so uh, th- those are those are his stories of of being a you know paper boy in the Great Depression. Uh, for my other grandfather, he was a farmer on top of Sand Mountain uh, in Northeast Alabama. And he would talk about uh, eating corn and molasses because that that was what they had plenty of. <laughs> over you know, my over family is from Sand Mountain, David. Yeah, really. We, we, we might, all right, we might be kin. We might be kin, man. How That'd be cool. That? So you know, I would say learn your family's stories about that time. Um, People who lived it might still be alive, and if the ones who lived it aren't, then the ne- that next generation may have stories that they can tell you as well. I mean, the, there, there's there's something really important about uh, not just reading stories about hard things happening that can, in some way, say you know, kind of safely on the other side of that literary divide, but recognizing that the things that you're reading about um, connect to people that you know. I imagine that's one reason why this story is so powerful to you, Matthew, is that this is a place and a people that you know. Um, mm-hmm. uh, for me, part of that power comes from not, not I'm not from that place and not from those people, but I do have people were, who, who were in that time and so uh, it's just really important to remember those stories. Mm-hmm. It's certainly true that, uh, I mean, where, where Sinclair Ross grows up is where one of my, my aunts and uncles lived. So I visited that town regularly. And uh, it, you, you can't read some of these stories without just, as you say, putting, putting people and places you know into it because... It, it strikes me like people I know, even if they've not been in that particular situation. Michael, did you have any uh, recommendations? I do. I have three songs I would recommend. Uh, the first two are fairly straightforward songs about the Dust Bowl. Uh, Vigilantes of Love Resplendent, which is probably in my top 10 or 20 songs of all time. 
Yeah, I remember the dark clouds Rain and dust for days on end Blew all the earth out to California Just left us here with the wind Desperate times, you know everybody's part your own lines you're like to forget To what you were meets what you've now become Grins and says, hey, haven't we met? Uh, we talked about Vigilantes of Love years ago, their album Blister Soul. This one's from their album Audible Sigh. It's really, really haunting. I would also recommend the, the Lost Dogs song, Dust in My Bowl. The babies, they's cold and they's hungry The wife cries, she wants to go back But there ain't no back to go back to The backs and the dozers made damn sure of is I think a pretty pretty remarkable treatment of a family that's lost their farm because the banks foreclosed because they can't grow anything in the land anymore. But the third one is a little bit weirder. It's a song by Gillian Welch called uh, uh, April the 14th, part one. April the 14th, kind of a bad day uh, in, in, uh, in American history. Uh, at least three terrible things happened on April 14th. One is the, the Black Sunday day dust storm um, that actually gives the dust bowl its name it hits oklahoma and texas in on april 14th 1935 and apparently the dust was so thick you could not see your hand in front of your face um so that's one thing that happened another thing is that abraham lincoln was shot on april 14th 1865 and also the titanic hit the iceberg at 11:40 p.m april the 14th 1912 so there's some sort of weird uh, spiritual voodoo going on on uh, on April the 14th. So Welch writes the song about those three events, and then also uh, something that happened in her own life when she was a teenager, which is that she went to see this traveling band play at a punk club and uh, realized that their lives were very sad and that she wanted to be a rock and roll star. So. Ruination day. I would recommend um, those three songs. Hmm. I have to check them out. I'm not familiar with any of them. So, <laughs> and apologies to everyone who that's your birthday. No so. kidding. <laughs> I used to write that last verse on my uh, whiteboard when I had an office door every year on April 14th. Nobody ever said anything. <laughs> <laughs> they just, they probably just walked by it and been like, ah, that's farmer. Probably true. 
Um, as for me, um, other recommendations. I mean, The Lamp at Noon is, is a good story. It, it has some flaws, I think, obviously. But uh, if you really want to get Sinclair Ross's more complete treatment, richer treatment, and I think aesthetically pleasing treatment of of this kind of suffering, um, you really can't go wrong reading As For Me In My House. It's it's a really beautiful, if very tragic, tale. Um, at the same time, if you're looking for something a little more hopeful from Ross, he's got at least one story called uh, Cornet at Night, which is um, worth reading. Um, I, I won't make any other recommendations outside of Sinclair Ross today, um, although you've, of course, mentioned some, Michael, just in the context of our stories, if you want to talk about more about the effects of the Depression in an American context, The Grapes of Wrath are, is obviously uh, a go-to place to go. But that about sums up everything for us this week. Before we wrap up, though, David, I know you'll be leading next week's discussion, so what can we look forward to then? Yeah, next week we're going to be digging into some very, very old grammar classroom curriculum. We're going to be reading Alfred of Incham's Colloquy, a dialogue written to teach little boys in a monastic setting how to speak Latin, not just Old English. Hmm, that sounds interesting. And I was worried for a second you were going to say very old 1930s grammar curriculum, and I was (laughs) (laughs) not looking forward to that. (laughs) No, much, much older than that. (laughs) Well, thanks for joining us for this week's discussion. If you have any comments, you can let us know by sending an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or by visiting our website at www.christianhumanist.org. You can also find us on Twitter at CH Radio Network. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. On behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer, this is Matthew Block saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.